All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. I am here telephonically with Reverend Abigail Connolly. And I am uh, amateur theologian Jim Barton. And so today we are observing um, good social distancing, and we are going to do the um, Bloody Mary Bible Brunch uh, via phone call. so uh, that's the reason for the less than optimal sound uh, quality, but for the sake of uh, saving Western civilization, we'll deal with some tinniness. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about um, continuing on with our, our series about uh, the, de- the death and the Bible. And um, we're now going to talk about basically burial rites and funerals and um, things of that nature. So um, let's see. Well, Let's start off with um, talking about um, in, in the, uh, some of the stories that we have from the Bible that concern um, this practice. And one of the interesting ones that we have is in Genesis 50. And I think that's interesting because in Genesis 50 we have um, the patriarch Jacob dies, and then his son Joseph, who is like sort of the connection to Egypt, you'll recall that the, at the end of the patriarch period they're in Canaan and then they end up in Egypt, um, because of uh, Joseph, sort of the trickster hero, kind of gets them down there. Um, Joseph, you know, weeps uh, on the body of Jacob, and then they uh, do have him prepared for uh, burial. And ultimately, um, after uh, Jacob is decomposed, I guess somewhat, uh, they don't really go into that kind of gruesome detail on it, I guess, they take the bones back to Canaan, back to his ancestral land. By contrast, when Joseph dies, Joseph is embalmed in the tradition of the Egyptians, I would presume. And so that's an interesting thing of where we see, though, um, this tradition of, on the one hand, moving the bones uh, after um, burial and then, uh, or I mean, after there's been some decomposition. And then in the case of, of Joseph, we have the embalming. Um, uh, Abby, you want to talk a little bit about what we get from the um, death of uh, Saul and Jonathan as received by David? Yeah, so David hears of the death of both of them, and we get what I think would seem like a very sort of um, familiar morning ritual there. So David hears, um, he actually, in a not great kind of act of wrath, he kills the messenger, literally. Um, so that might be another place where don't kill the messenger comes from. Um, but he's begins with a eulogy. And he declares a day of um, fasting throughout the country. And so kind of like we would expect, it becomes a day that is somehow set apart um, in changes in what we do in food. And seems very similar to what we would still expect would happen in our culture centuries later. Right. And I think we get that similar um, um, importance of spending time in mourning um, when we hear Jesus' interaction with Lazarus. Um, Lazarus is a friend of Jesus, and in John 11, we uh, the story of his death, Lazarus' death, is captured. Um, and I think it's interesting that on the way to um, um, – meet Lazarus, presumably Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, um, Jesus weeps nonetheless, and everyone is there, and there's a time of mourning, and we see again this time of mourning publicly um, being captured. 
Um, and so I think that's an interesting uh, component of what we get from Scripture um, that does kind of talk about this topic a lot. I suppose one last thing that we should talk about um, is, um, Abby, you want to talk about sort of the um, funeral rites, the, the use of myrrh and the linen and all that that we get from basically, I mean, it's in a couple places in the Gospel of John, but probably elsewhere. Yeah, so we know that the practice of linen to preserve it and anointing it with oils um, was common in Jesus' day. This is actually part of the story of even the visitation by the Magi at Jesus' birth, that they would bring frankincense and myrrh that were meant to anoint a body at death. And so they end up being um, expensive spices that are used both to cover the smell of decay as well as preserve some bit of the body itself. It's similar when Jesus is anointed by a woman who pours um, perfume over his feet. This is also meant to echo that. So commonly enough known practices that involve these spices and wrapping in linen, that it's echoed in scripture that's supposed to be um, the stories we receive looking forward to Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Yeah, and I think it gives um, it is uh, it gives uh, some some um, detail in John too about um, uh, what's his name? Joseph of Arimathea, I guess, which I I always think of as uh, more from uh, Arthur legends and such than I do from actually being in the Bible. But of course, Joseph of Arimathea is in the Bible, um, and it talks specifically um, that Nicodemus is involved, and it talks about for whatever reason the the mixture of myrrh and aloe being seventy five pounds. Which I, that's a that's a that's a good amount of um, yeah, yeah embalming fluid I guess or not it's not embalming fluid uh, uh, the, the sort of perfume that they they put on it. Um, all right, so we have these practices. We have sort of public mourning that is um, practiced in the scripture. We also have at least a couple of different ways the body is treated. Although it seems that um, the embalming of Joseph is a real kind of an outlier, again, sort of maybe showing that connection to Egypt. Um, but I think it's also interesting now to talk about some of the um, our current practices, and you had some interesting experiences with that working as a chaplain, I believe. Yeah. So I think it is one of those things where we recognize our attitudes toward death and bodies are so culturally driven, and culture and religion are not easily removed from one another, um, but obviously people living in exile in Egypt were fine with embalming when that wasn't the practice they would otherwise have. So the hospital where I did CPE, we were actually charged with doing the morgue viewing. Um, so when a, somebody died at the hospital, if their family wasn't able to be with them and they the body had not yet been transported to a funeral home, which was often the case, they could do a viewing down in the morgue, which is essentially a giant cooler. Um, and so it was the chaplain's job to go and pull the body out of the cooler to wipe off any kind of fluids that were immediately present, to drape with a cloth so it didn't look so medical, to prepare a family member for what they might see because um, the practice was if the patient was intubated, if anything was on there medically that was taken from the room to the morgue, it had to stay in there then. We couldn't remove it later. Mm-hmm. So... Um, this was in the practice, cover up what you could, clean up what you could, drape a um, sheet so that, you know, they're not seeing a body bag, and then push this into a nicer room than what the morgue was. 
so you end up with this ritual that I think it's really fascinating that you had that job as clergy. You know what as I mean? Clergy. Isn't it yes. interesting that that was the job that you had? I mean, and did they talk at all about why this is a job that goes to a pastor? I mean, part of it was they wanted the pastor there for the viewing. If you were lucky and the more viewing happened at a time through the week when there was a lot of staff, then a nurse might come down and very nicely prepare the body for you. So you didn't have to do that. Um, and there was the line of, like, we're not clinicians, so if there's anything you're uncomfortable doing, you don't have to do it. But this was kind of the ritual. We were the best prepared to do the pastoral care side of things. And so because of hospital logistics, that became, I think, the rest of it was our job, too, because otherwise you have multi-staff that have to get there at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I think that whole ritual points to a few things. One is we often expect our location of death now to be in a clinical setting. Um, so people die in a hospital. There's a clinical side of it. You know, we're not letting families into the morgue where things are sealed and easily cleaned afterwards and sanitized. Um, interestingly, one of the things that you also find is most people, if they lose a loved one, especially unexpectedly, in order to believe it, they have to see the person dead. Um, and so some of the people who are most adamant about we need to see the body walk in, see the body, say goodbye, and turn around and walk out. Hmm. It's a three-minute interaction. It's not, it's not involved. It's just that somehow there is this idea that you have to see it in order to believe it. Yeah. And I think that as a culture where we do not, you know, we talk about the soul living on and those things, this is one of the places where we need to talk and remember that body and soul are united for us, even if we don't always realize that. Um, and so there's a bit of psychosomatic unity is the, the term that I talk about from a theological perspective, that our identity, our understanding of who we are is tied to body. And that, and that is a very scriptural notion, right? The idea mm -hmm. of... The, the, the separate, we've talked about this a lot, but the idea that you have a soul that is separate from a physical body is a very Hellenistic idea, and that's not, and that's not what we get from uh, Judeo-Christian background. Right, and it is interesting, you know, when Jesus appears in the Gospel of John after his crucifixion, um, after he is resurrected, the story we tell this Sunday after Easter each year is of Thomas wanting to put his hands through the holes in Jesus. Yeah. And so a resurrected Jesus, Lord, still has scars from being crucified. Right. So we, those things are not undone. Our bodies matter deeply. And I think that becomes incredibly apparent when we start talking about death. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting when you compare these two phenomena that you, you, just, you just held up, which is that when people needing to see the body to accept death, particularly in a in a case of a um, sudden death, and then the fact that we've mostly located death to clinical settings, to hospital. I mean, you know what, Abby, it's crazy, but if you think about it, that's oftentimes, oftentimes even household pets, um, that the death is, they're euthanized at a veterinarian. I mean, I mean, 
we we have really it's interesting, isn't it, that we've sort of taken death and um, separate and apart from any ritual we're talking about, but like which is clinically have moved it off to another uh, space where it's not you know it's not so around us. Right, and you know when you say the death of a pet, um, our church's music director had a pet die at home, and she called me at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night saying I don't know what to do. Because, you know, we both are in the middle of nowhere where it's like, I don't know, you go dig a hole in the backyard. But all of a sudden we're in an urban setting. What do you do? And, you know, we called the vet and they could take care of the body. But it was midnight and we're loading a dog's body into the back of my car in this really kind of macabre scene because we're not used to this. Um, And because of that, you know, death ends up being very unfamiliar one of the work of hospice social workers and sometimes chaplains is talking people through what death looks like. Because if you want death to happen at home, then you've got to be prepared for um, there is a death rattle. There is a different sound your body makes because of the various biological processes that mean all of a sudden breathing is really terrible to listen to. So people have to be prepared for that. Um, you know, loss of bodily fluids upon death because your muscles relax. People aren't prepared for that. Right. Um, most people, if you don't die sleeping, you die with your eyes open. Whereas in the movies, you know, that's only the evil guy who does that. Right. Because good people die with their eyes closed. So it's this really kind of strange re-education about what used to be very familiar because most people died at home. Um or at least died where there wasn't a clinical setting to deal with it. And it's it, and it's, it's interesting to me too. There's a tension about that. And if you look in like the the um, the Levitical uh, passages about and then and the other sort of law passages that when you become unclean by touching a dead body, um, obviously, well, every you had that was a part of life, right? Is you had to touch a dead body. But then but then we have a system set up for how. For how you get clean again, and what's you know how long do you how long are you how long are you ritually unclean after you tested that body and all that kind of thing. So it's interesting to me because it shows I think that that culture, the the Hebrew culture, certainly has some anxiety about bodies, right? I mean they were they didn't see dead bodies as just like well whatever it's a shell you know like cling on on Star Trek you know it's a shell you can do with what you want. No, they didn't think that. I mean they had you know they had uh, uh, important rituals that they used around and all that kind of thing, but at the same time. It was special, but also they needed ritual to like say, well, it's ordinary enough that we have to have a ritual to get you back to like figure out how you how you get back in. Right? So you're in a an unclean state, but we also have a specific technique or a system to get you back into right. the fold. And there are two things there that I think are especially interesting. One is it's still clergy dealing with the body, so right. that hasn't changed in some ways. Right. The other thing is. Um, so many of the ritual laws that become religious law did help keep people alive. So you touched a dead body, you're essentially quarantining yourself right. until you know that you're not sick too from whatever killed that person. Yep. And so, you know, as we record this during the COVID-19 pandemic, right. that becomes all of a sudden this really visceral thing to realize this is still what's happening, you know. 
3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years after these laws were written. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that that sort of separation and allowing things to have time to work themselves out is still, you know, it's a good technique then, and I guess we're using it now. I also yeah. want to point out that I think, it's, you know, it's funny, too, when you compare this to um, marriage, because if you go looking for marriage, um, what the Bible says about marriage, it's just very clear that marriage is a very cultural thing. You don't see a lot of, like, I mean, there's some, you know, there's not, a, there's not, there's a lot, it's more clear to me that the faith, the church, the church, of course, you can talk about Hebrews is a little weird, right? So the, the church quote is not like that separate as we kind of, you know, but the church seems more involved in funeral and death than it was in marriage. And marriage, it seems like the Bible almost treats like a state institution pretty early on, whereas the funeral, it seems to me, is more connected to um, spiritual or the, the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that leads us to talking about how do we deal with funerals now and how do we deal with, you know, I have, um, I have some friends who don't have uh, contact with the church and, and or any kind of uh, religious um, um, connection uh, who, you know, when, the, when someone passes away, they're sort of, you know, uh, sometimes people do nothing. Um, sometimes right. people, you know, have a very like, uh, like almost like a happy hour or something. And um, I think that's a little bit of a I think that's a little bit of a, a missed opportunity. I think there's something valuable about the funeral that we get from this culture. I think we get it. You get it from other cultures. But as a pastor, what are some of the what are some of the things that you see as like people having to think about when they're like deciding what to do with a funeral and how much of it's so, how much of it's cultural? You know, there there is this what is to me a very disturbing kind of cultural tendency that we do celebration of life. Because we are so death denying, we don't even know how to be sad publicly at this point. Yeah. And that is one of those things that is just not true for who we are. We already talked about Jesus sat and wept at the death of his friend. Public um, sadness should be okay. And I've seen people do that very well at various times in life, but that is one of those things that. Um, from a religious standpoint, it should be celebration of life and resurrection. But there has been this, um, this kind of cultural appropriation that we're only going to talk about life. We're not going to talk about the problem of death and what has happened to this person we love and what is going to happen going forward. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, just comes back again and again for me is the community, a religious community, teaches you about death in a way that other people, other agencies can't. Partly because it is um, intergenerational. So there is something I think that is profoundly good about a five-year-old having an experience of the death of someone that isn't a grandparent, isn't someone in their immediate family, but still kind of invites them in. Um, you know, we'll have cake, we'll have a funeral, we'll do these things. And that, for me, is one of those kind of profound goods of religious community. There's a familiarization that makes this less scary. Yeah. Um, and with that, there are people who walk the ritual with you. I think for the broader culture, death is often so isolating. Right. Whereas in church, people remember. You know, five years later, people remember they're still able to talk about your loved one. You and I, I mean, so many times we'll end up mentioning a retired minister from our congregation who died, Dale Copsey, 
or Jim Corner. Um, and those things are regular, and they've both been gone more than five years. So there becomes this corporate memory that extends so much farther. Um, and it also is one of those places where, you know, church ladies show up and get stuff done. Yeah. And one funeral that I did in particular where we were expecting a lot of people, the military group that was helping with the food, like their leader freaked out. Like, what do you mean we're going to have cake for 200 people? And, like, I have met many church people, and if you say dessert for 200 people, they're just kind of like, eh, okay, got it, and move on. Um because it is just so much embedded in who we are and how we are together, that we are people who know about death well. And in the Christian tradition, we also talk about resurrection. And you don't get resurrection without death. You don't get the good without the horrible with it. Um, And so that really, really matters for us um, as we consider our place in the whole system. Sure. And I will say this, having my dad passed away, it's been now over 10 years ago, I think, and, and with him, uh, with his passing, uh, it, it was very important to me to have people at the funeral. And I think it's interesting because before that, I don't think I realized the impact of it. So I think it's, this is something that I do think the church provides a vehicle for. It's sort of giving you that permission, that space to leave. Um, publicly, and then also giving that opportunity for people to come together to be supported in a way that I think is not, I, I, it's, it's, it's one of the, the many things that I think it's difficult to sort of verbalize. Now now we get back to, I'm going to compare it favorably again with, with marriage. You know, marriage is, um, you know, does a piece of paper quote change something? No, no. Uh, but marriage, I think being married maybe changes something. And I think in a similar way, like, um, I think the ritual of the funeral um, does change something. There is some value to it. So even though um, more than just some value, to it, I think it's, it was really profoundly important for me in my case with my dad. So um, even though, you know, we don't have, I don't necessarily think there is some sort of cosmic impact of it. I do think for me psychologically and emotionally there is an important impact of it. Yeah. Um, and I would say with that then, there is a, it's also everyone who's at your dad's funeral becomes someone that you can continue to grief with because you, they were at your dad's funeral. Right. And it's well, been 10 years, but you still know who that was. That's right. I think um, we should also, we should, as we're getting sort of close to the half hour mark here, we should, we should talk about, uh, sort of in the end, some of the questions about burial rules. Uh, in our current society, and specifically, I'm going to give you an opportunity, again, to make a good, strong public record about what your tombstone orientation should be. Yes, so my tombstone orientation should be upright, not one of the flat ones. One of the flat ones will get whoever chose it haunted. My spouse knows this. My family has known this for a long time. I do not believe we should be easy to maintain in death just because the flat ones are easy to mow over. Very good. So you're, you're, you're pretty low maintenance as a person now, but you're saying in death you're going to be more of a high maintenance. Yes. None of this just we want it to be easy to mow around. It's fine. I, uh, I, uh, my uh, family has practiced cremation and for most of the folks that have passed in my family, and that's my, uh, that's my expectation is for cremation. And 
Also, I actually like the idea of scattering ashes. We scattered my dad's ashes over. We went on a big road trip and scattered his ashes at various um, roadside stops where they have, like, little historical markers because he loved those, and I think that was a that was a great way to honor him, and I, I would like something similar. Um, what is the... What, do you, what does the church have to say or what do you have to say as a pastor about uh, cremation? So the Catholic Church at some point decided cremation was okay. Um, and when the Catholic Church decides something, most of the taboos around it disappear over time. Um, one of the big arguments for being okay with cremation is we recognize that while bodies are deeply important, We've lost many bodies. What do you do with people killed in war, lost at sea, when there is no body to send home? And so this idea of psychosomatic unity made it for so long that we have to have a body because there's going to be a physical resurrection and there has to be a body to rise. Well, we don't think that as much anymore just theologically as the church. Pastorally, one of the reasons that it has become much more normative is because people are mobile and they can't visit a grave and because it is much cheaper. Um, And so, you know, when you're talking literally less than half the cost, that makes the choice for many people. Um, I'm fine with whatever, as much as I'm personally very pro being buried in the ground. Pastorally, I'm like, whatever works for your family. Um, And I will say it is very interesting when people choose cremation, to watch them kind of treat the ashes like the person. You know, I'm going to go get so-and-so. Can I take that person home with me? Those things that it does create some of that um, ongoing connection, even in death. We got uh, one of those, um, if you've ever been to a golf course, they put on the cart a seed seed can where you have a spout that you can, like, sprinkle grass seed if if you hit a divot. Uh-huh. We took one of those and filled those with dad's ashes so that we could quickly disperse them in the at the roadside markers because <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't always authorized where we didn't know if it was authorized so we just sort of kind of quickly kind of put that down. The uh, I will tell you as we were transferring the ashes from the boxes that they came in into that that they get everywhere. So I don't know I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means I have a good attitude. <laughs> about death or, or or I'm going to be haunted at some other point in the sacrilegious, I don't know. But the fact is a lot of ashes blew uh, over my brother and I as we were making that transition. But you know. <laughs> um, I, I guess, um, you know, and then, of course, we did want to make, we did before we sign off here, is like give a nod to the fact that there's a lot of different cultures. We talked about how, interestingly, it seems like if you look, there seems to be some consistency to the way the Genesis story, which I don't know when that was written, but it was certainly written Early, early, you know, early Hebrew period would have been when they wrote that story. They had the, they still in that story they had the idea of you uh, uh, would wait and there would be some decay and then you would transfer the bones. It seems like that was the process that Jesus was um, set to be in when he was put in the tomb that's sort of carved away from the stone. That that would be a similar way you would treat a family member, which is you know let the bones decay and then move them into this other setting. Um, um, but even in that Genesis story, we have this story of, jo- of Joseph who's doing this other sort of business in this Egyptian style of uh, burial. Um, I think that it makes it should we should give a nod to the fact that like yeah there are this is an intensely cultural situation and there are lots of different things. Cremation is one um, different way to handle the body. Um, 
but how do you do cremation and, and, and what do you do with the remains and do you, you know, how do you treat your ancestors, um, you know, in, in where do you have a place to memorialize them? I mean, all those are, I think, very interesting and different across cultural lines. Yeah. And we don't, you know, we kind of said, we don't have the ability to talk intelligently about other cultures um, and right. to name what those different practices are. But it would be interesting to know some of the different things of like, what is it okay to do with a body that we think is a taboo? Um, does the idea of having ashes on your mantle just freak you out if you live in another part of the world? Yeah, I will tell you, I remember my grandmother's funeral, which is one of the few ones in my family where we had a body in the space. And that, to this day, that, that weirded me out. I mean, I was a young adult. I mean, I was like in college, I think. No, I was out of college when she died. But, I mean, so I was a young adult when she died, and I just remember thinking, boy, that's a corpse. Why are we in a room with a corpse? But then, like you talked about, the, the, so that's even in our own culture. So I think when you, yeah, when you, when you reach across I, cultural boundaries, it's very hard to, like, understand uh, what we're talking about. Yeah, because I grew up in a culture where it was all open caskets. You know, they would close the casket right before the funeral visitation was always viewing of the body and like when my great-grandmother died when I was about seven like my cousin and I decided to go touch the body and like yeah. you know in the young adulthood I tell my mom this and she's like oh she would have laughed a whole lot because you know this is this taboo right. but still a different kind of comfort there well, I think that's a, I think that's pretty much what we wanted to cover. Um, um, like I said, uh, I, there is I know the quality of this is a little bit less than when we are able to record um, in person, but uh, I hope that folks will enjoy it. And um, also, I want to say give a shout out to people um, if you want to um, leave comments. We we can check about those too. We're really trying to develop our online, um, you know, community. And I think in a sense, this sort of uh, outbreak it has got us all boxed up in our houses uh, can be an opportunity to learn to do that. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. But um, I think that'll do it for now. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, cheers.